Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Eric Johnson, an actor you may have seen as Everett Gallinger in The Nick, as Luke Callahan in Rookie Blue, and as Jack Hyde in Fifty Shades Darker. He reprises that role alongside Dakota Johnson and Jamie Dornan in Fifty Shades Freed, in theaters everywhere this Friday, February 9th. Eric picked Children of Men, Alfonso Cuaron's devastating dystopian thriller set in a worn-out London some two decades after humans have stopped being able to bear children. Life is over, the future is dead, and hope is lost. Unless it isn't, and that's where the story begins. With an incredible cast that includes Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, Michael Caine, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Danny Houston, and the amazing Claire Hope Ashety, it's a magnificent work of near-future science fiction and one of the best films made in the last couple of decades. Filled with terrific performances, surprising creative choices, riveting set pieces, and, well, everything, really. I said it was one of the best. If you haven't seen it, you're definitely going to want to do that before you listen to this episode. And if you haven't seen it in a while, I think you're going to want to see it again. This is someone else's movie. This is going to be a really um, uh, short conversation on my side. <laughs> and uh, as I rewatched the movie this morning. Oh, wow. And it's perfect. So it's up to you to tell me how it's not. Oh God! Because it's uh, the movie is is. It, I remember seeing it in the theater and sitting down, and I hadn't had that kind of adrenaline rush, um, an emotive, emotional feeling, and mm-hmm. adrenaline rush in a film, and, and I don't know how long. And and it came out, and I'm like, this is, this is one of the top films of the decade uh it's one of my top five films of all time um from a story standpoint and a technical standpoint and how it was achieved i was just blown away and i'm like this movie should win all of the things because <laughs> it's it's a triumph it's like everybody go see this and and everybody didn't go see it no it was like pulling teeth it was it's and i i looked at the numbers today. i looked at the box office it's a travesty because the movie is incredible and being able to look at it again today and seeing the movie's even more relevant today than when it came out. Um, and it's kind of brilliant that being able to see the layers on it now, too, of, of the, the, the little things, uh, the pieces in the background and, and, and the way Alfonso Cuaron revealed them or just had them as part of the story. This yeah. um, is his... His eye into that world and the the POV he takes you on is is uh, it's an incredible journey with great performances, uh, great sound design and music and cinematography and it just the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, so it's it's the reason I picked it is it's to me it is a triumph of of everything that cinema should be. I'm not going to say no. Uh, no, it, it's on my top ten list as well mm-hmm. for that decade. It um, it was a movie that I never fully understood what went wrong with the marketing. Because the film itself is, yeah, it should have been perfect. Mm-hmm. For for me, my, my experience of it as, an, as a working film critic at the time was it was one of the last things that was screened for us that year. It was it a Christmas release. It came out release. like January 5th, I think. Yeah. Like uh, after the holidays. There was a, I think... We saw it, the TFCA saw it for consideration for that awards year. So either it was about to open and they moved it. It was a 10 a.m. screening, which means that was an awards thing. Universal doesn't usually do those. Mm -hmm. And we all went in and and it just like, it played to silence. The occasional laugh, but it played to just kind of shocked, pummeled silence. Yeah. And like... It's a punishing film. It is, yeah. It's, it's... Like it's work, and what's I thought was brilliant is they they did put these little moments of levity in there, and these little you know jokes of dark comedy that mm-hmm. uh, that just help break the tension for a moment. Yeah, the gallows humor is mm-hmm. essential to it, and also I'm I'm see, you're seeing it in the real world now. Like this is how we're handling the apocalypse unfolding in slow motion. Everything about the tone is dead right. The exhaustion. The the, uh-huh. the kind of hollowed out nature of society, Apathy, uh, the the uh, misdirected anger at 
immigration and yeah. I mean you know thinking about this film when was it early 2005 or or, or early 2006 like 11 years later mm-hmm. almost 12 years later it's opening the DVD case yes, I'm looking for a copyright notice uh, copyright 2007 so it would have been 2006 I guess yeah okay and uh, it's so spot on with you know those those feelings of, of Brexit and you know foreign policy and how we look at outsiders and it's just taken to an extreme I mean that's the thing I, I also love about this sort of genre of sci-fi where it's like 15 minutes in the future where everything feels very tactile and real still but it's just a little bit far away so it makes it a little extra scary because this could be us yeah it's a likely progression mm-hmm. like every emotion feels real because yeah we're as you say we're 15 minutes like mm-hmm. it could happen tomorrow it's it's the kind of futurism that is incredibly depressing because there's almost no hope to it and that feels like the modern moment too like it but that's like what the movie is about exactly the movie is about it. hope the movie's about uh, 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 Michael Caine has a has this uh, speech where he's talking about um, uh, faith versus chance, and when chance takes something away from you, is your faith strong enough to hold on? And uh, talking about how Clive Owen's character and the death of his son um, that sort of takes his faith away, yeah. and uh, you know he's got this bleak outlook on life, and then finds hope. And how far you're willing, he's willing to go now uh, to help preserve that. And uh, I mean, that's that's. I mean, I find myself as an individual being awfully cynical and can look at things and go, "Wow, this we've we've really we've really piled a lot of horse shit onto this planet." And how the hell are we going to fix it? And if something like this happened, well, we kind of deserve it, which is what which is what he even said to yeah. us. It. Like, we deserve all this. You know, like this, this happened, uh, uh, you know, the whole, if you don't know the movie, which you should, cause it's amazing. It's the idea that for 18 years, no children have been born. It's like, so the, the, the world's women are infertile and they have no way of having any more children. Right. It's the end of the line in so yeah. many ways. And what I love about the script and the thing that no one ever talks about in these movies, the speculative fiction stuff, mm-hmm. uh, is the idea that. We never know the details. Not that there was no cause. I don't. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the cause was, but even the way in which it played out. Even uh, yeah. there's the suggestion that everyone miscarried at the same time, which is horrifying. Mm-hmm. But that's just floated very briefly. Yeah, it's never really discussed, and it's better that way because the idea that maybe that's what happened or how it happened, it, it, like in a short burst of mm-hmm. kind of a viral outbreak going around the world, that's disturbing. But it's even more disturbing to not know for certain. Absolutely. To just you, Not knowing your enemy. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing to go and conquer, right? Yeah. And, and the I, idea that the whole world would be shattered by this thing that mm-hmm. no one could understand, which is the most personal blow you can suffer, I understand, mm-hmm. as I understand it, having never had kids. But, you know, short of the death of a child mm-hmm. is the loss of a, of a potential child. Mm-hmm. And the idea that most of the world's population is grappling with that on one level or another mm-hmm. and has been for... 18 years mm-hmm. is just horrible in the extreme and and so yeah. un- it's like a, it's like a Garcia Marquez kind of thing a magic realist idea mm-hmm. that's so intolerable you can't discuss it yeah i mean it just the that that the the whole construct of of what would society look like with no children mm-hmm. and what does that mean when you cuz children ultimately when you look around that represents the future like you how many things do we do in our lives that are are for the future or at least thinking like you know retirement and all that sort of stuff sure you get hit by a bus and it doesn't matter but it's the that idea of we're building towards something that keeps a lot of us going right you know whether it's putting money into your retirement or you know I've got some renovations I want to do on the house <laughs> we're all working for something and if you take that idea of a future away what does that do to a society? Well, as it shows in the movie, it's fractured. And, and uh, you know, there's brilliant use of, of news footage and, and background environments and talking about how the rest of the world has fallen and sort of England is sort of struggling and but hanging on by a thread. Right. Uh, keep calm and carry on kind of thing. Yeah. Again, utterly relevant to the moment. Totally. But also being misapplied, right? Because what mm-hmm. you see is people who are used to getting coffee just before the coffee shop explodes and people die. It's the... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great opening because 
there's no music, there's no sense that anything is wrong, and then all of a sudden you're thrust into this horrible, harsh battle existence. The the thing that blows me away about this film, and again, it's going back and looking at it again, is the efficiency of storytelling. Mm. The uh, the efficacy of, of the camera and how it revealed things and how it showed things of character and the environment and the world. And it, the camera really is following Clive Owen's character, Theo, around. Mm. But every once in a while, the camera breaks away from him and just takes you into this this future world yeah, it just of, wanders around uh, just, really. it just takes you into this environment which is incredibly unnerving uh, because you feel like you're you're somewhat surrounded by it and the opening it, it absolutely does that you start in this coffee shop everybody enamored at the television of the death of the youngest person on the planet which is exactly what humanity would do to this person yeah. he's done nothing but he's a celebrity because he's the youngest person on the planet and they've died and it takes you out into the street into London 2027 and just takes you in there. It doesn't follow Clive Owen's character anymore. It shows you the street. And then, you know, you see Clive Owen filling his coffee cup full of booze. Mm -hmm. And that tells you everything you need to know about Clive Owen's character. And then all of a sudden, coffee shop blows up that he was just in. And uh, it's like, that's the world. Yeah. That's where we are. It's it's great to all one shot by the way yeah exactly. that's the thing it's all one shot it's, it's so immersive so and and Quran, you know now he's the master of the single take after mm-hmm. the gravity and the cg engineering that went into those and it is an amazing but what's brilliant about this film is the lack of cg engineering um I, I i will i will say i don't know how he did these things because i purposefully didn't investigate how he did these okay. things because i don't want to know that's great it's it's so good that there's an element of magic to it and I don't want to peer behind the wizard's curtain because yeah. it's I, I don't want to know it's just magic to me like the what he what he did and you know there may be a day where I, or I learn or find out but because I, I did see you know how he did this incredible shot in the car right of this amazing one take and how they did that and I figured it was green screen when I watched the film and then to, it is, yeah. but then to see how they actually built this specific car yeah and you're going yeah, it's it's mind blowing like the the technical achievements in this film are uh, it just it pushed cinema forward right yeah. it was a leap forward for for movie making you don't get birdman without this film you right. don't get gravity without this film um then the other thing was seeing some of the 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 narrative and storytelling mechanisms that they use in children and men of these these longer shots these still you know of of focusing on what the story is as opposed to who's talking mm-hmm. which drives me nuts but then seeing how that influenced the show I did with Clive Owen called The Nick right where uh there's there's similarities in that in terms of even just the the style in terms of uh you know these wide angle handheld lenses um and immersing you feeling like you're a part of this world that was transferred into the 19 you know the year 1900 New York but that same kind of storytelling of, of, of allowing a scene to, to evolve within a shot or or to change the shot dynamically to tell the story but not necessarily follow who's talking because who's talking is not important as how somebody's reacting to it. So from a technical standpoint and all the, the, the bells and whistles of how to make a movie, it's an amazing film. And then you put on, a, a, there's a story behind it and performances that are fantastic and a commentary about who we are as people on top of that it's just like this is what this is everything I want in a movie yeah I, the way I was trying to sell it to people who thought it was a war movie just because of that photograph that cover design mm-hmm. that made it look like I mean it is mm-hmm. but it makes it look like Owen is hiding behind a, a giant cinder block or something the the way I sold it was it's a private eye film like it's a it's a yep. neo-noir it's the neo it's, it's noir, absolutely right? it's a noir film yeah because it's hopeless but not hopeless mm-hmm. it's about a quest and an investigation it's mm-hmm. about people finding things out that they don't want to know all of that stuff and it's about the the classic you know wronged man slowly regaining his purpose which is it's Rogue One now it's the arc mm-hmm. of every great um, thriller 
Yes. And it is a thriller. And it yep. is a future, uh, a future noir, a mm-hmm. neo, neoist. I don't even, I don't know what they're, what the words are for this movie because I do think in a lot of ways it's a synthesis of all of these genres that works in a new way, yeah. which is the thing that Quaron does. Like Gravity is a present day science fiction movie. Um, mm-hmm. Although he joked that it was actually set two years in the past when we had an active space shuttle program. <laughs> which, that's just annoying. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but he is, yeah, he is breaking ground and reinventing the cliches, mm-hmm. uh, playing with the relationships and the, our expectations. You know, we assume that Moore and Owen are going to rediscover their love together. No, that doesn't happen. Yeah. I, I, absolutely, absolutely. Again, and narrative, like just breaking down the script today, and and sort of like, okay, looking at where the act breaks were and how they did it. It was so well done. Yeah. And just, I mean, I think there's six writers that are on, on this project, mm-hmm. and you and never it, know whose hands are all over what. But yeah. and it bears almost no relationship to the original Peter James novel. Really? Well, I mean, it's the the threads are there, but. So much of it, the, the James didn't have a lot of humor in it. It was mm-hmm. a much more dour uh, presentation. I think mm-hmm. it was written. I'm going to blow this, but I think it was written in the mid '80s, and so it reflects right. a lot of that stuff. Right. And by updating it to the present and beyond, it just automatically it's mm-hmm. a nastier, angrier thing. Plus, there's the whole English person writing about England, which with you know you bring in Quran and you bring in the Americans and mm-hmm. you change the, the 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 diversity of the approach makes right. it much more. Alive and interesting, and certainly Koran is aware of, and and you know he lives in London, and, and he's thinking through the way people look at him mm-hmm. when he just walks around. His and, experiences yeah. as a as an immigrant to that country, as an, as other, an outsider, yeah, completely inform the story. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's the the POV of this film is is you, it, I will say the thing that I took out of it today is that I found the film incredibly inspiring. I found it. I found it actually kind of hopeful, and I felt better about things <laughs> after the movie than I did when I started it. And uh, you know, just and from from so many levels. Again, as as a as, as somebody who's in the industry and does see behind the curtain and knows what goes into making these things, uh, and um, but just for the the story is 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 sort of humanity distilled in a way. It's like. It's not pretty, but we can do good things yeah. if we're sort of forced into it. Yeah. But, n- but we mostly don't, yeah. you know. And it's it's uh, it re- there's there's themes and, and bleakness to it um, uh, uh, that uh, another English film, uh, Never Let Me Go. Do you remember that one? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we're recording this in December for the listeners, and I just dropped the Claire Armstrong episode on Never Let Me Go two weeks ago, so it's... Wow, really, I just, very it's fresh for you. Very fresh in my mind. Uh, and again, it's dealing with these, what what makes us human, and what's what's that spark, and why do we care, and how do you not become apathetic, and, and what does hope mean? Yeah. And uh, I thought that was a really brilliant film. I saw that film by accident, by the way. Oh, how did that That was That was, uh, that was a, it, it was... At uh, Toronto Film Festival when it was here, uh, I thought I was going into, uh, I think the David Suzuki documentary. Okay, yeah. But I went into the wrong theater, and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of people here for this. <laughs> and it was like nine in the morning, and then seeing that film at nine in the morning with a with the appropriate Tiff hangover uh-huh. uh, was that was a whew, that's a <laughs> tough morning. That one's you're a little raw, you know. You're a little, you're a little, you're a bit of a raw nerve at that time. The best experiences, though, the ones that are the best films experiences I've had at TIFF are being walloped like that, but not not seeing something. And in fact, um, one of my favorite movies, one of my other favorite movies of the last decade, uh, Squid and the Whale, Mm. the Bombback film. I saw that by mistake. Well, not by mistake. The the 10 a.m. I was there for was canceled. The print didn't show up. Right. So I just went into the next room for a press screening. 10:30. It's short. It's 87 minutes. Oh, yeah. man, I'm here. Yeah. I like this director. And then I come out and it's just like, well, that was my parents' divorce in slow motion. I don't need to, <laughs> I don't need to see that again. That was awesome. Uh, uh, w- yeah. For you, so when you saw this film, yes. you review this. You reviewed this film. I did. Yeah. And and yet nobody went to it. Nope. Well, I, I have no impact. I yeah. mean, I was No, no, I'm not saying in terms of review, but, I, but no, was no, it a positive it, review at the oh, time? Like, yeah. Oh, I think I, I five stars, best of. Yeah. Um, I think we all said that. I mean, there were a couple of people who 
thought it was, I mean, remember somebody at the time, I don't remember who it was, but someone said it was really, like, the bleakness was oppressive. And it's like, yeah, but, but if you don't plug into it, sure. Yeah. That's, you know, like, people have differing opinions on stuff. That mm-hmm. That's fine. Uh, but I think that was part of it, too. Like, you you couldn't find a trailer. I've, I've gone back and looked at the marketing, and none of it is really what the movie is. I wonder if it got buried. Like, I wonder if, you know, for whatever reason, Universal had a different film they were pushing for Oscars at that, that year or whatever it was, because I mean that's that's really what we're talking about is allocation of funds to sure. to market something. Well, if this is two thousand six. It's the year after Brokeback, mm-hmm. although that was focused, not Universal. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's always depressing to go back and think mm-hmm. about what wins and what doesn't. Well, and you could you know you also have the executive shakeover. Like somebody comes on board and they've got their baby that's up for, and they're going to push. You know, everybody pushes their own puts their own child in the lifeboat first. Yeah, and uh, it's. You know, sometimes films get lost. I, 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 you know, what was crazy is uh, this was, you know, obviously one of my top films of uh, uh, that I that I'd seen again because of all the achievements in it. Um, and then getting to work with Clive was, uh, you know, they say don't meet your heroes, but it was it was actually it, it, it was it made it better, yeah. it made the movie better. Well, I was going to ask, because I'd just follow him around asking about it all day. Mm-hmm. And that would... Well, you know, I actually really tried not to, because I was kind of geeking out a little hard. It was, like, my first day on, on set of The Nick, and, you know, my other one of my other top films of the decade was Traffic. And so, I'm Steven Soderbergh sitting there, holding the camera, looking at me, and I turn around, and I turn around, and, and Clive's looking at me, because we're about to shoot this scene, and I had this moment <laughs> where I, I just about crapped my pants, because it's like... When I thought about making movies and doing this, I wanted to do it with these people, and I'm doing that, and I kind of kind of had a little freak out there for yeah, a second. That's not intimidating at all. No, not at all. Not at all. And I, I've totally flubbed my line that take. Oh. Because there was just like, it was like the hamster wheel got away, and there was no way I was coming back. It's like, I, I, need, I need a second here. Okay, we're good. Let's go. And it was like, whoa, got to get a handle on that. But I, I didn't, I, I wouldn't talk about it. I wouldn't ask him questions because I could have just done it for hours. But then I would, you know, listen around to see if he was, you know, sometimes he'd like start talking to somebody else about it or something else. And I'd just be like, <laughs> you know, leaning in or like sort of sit closer and, and just want to hear about it. And uh, so it was, it was, uh, it, was uh, it was cool. It was, it was really cool to, to, you know, you look at a, a movie and a performance, and you're like, "Wow, that was that was great. That actor's great." And then to, to actually see him in person, uh, being great and his process, and and being a, a great person to work with, it was like, it, it was reaffirming that you know there's good people out there, and and uh, uh, you know not everybody in in the industry is a jerk, <laughs> and you know that good people do succeed. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, it was it, it was. Uh, that was an interesting experience. So, did you catch anything? Did he say? Any, did you ever catch any pieces of information? Uh, I don't. I don't know of any sort of specifics I could say that. But it's just the, uh, just little bits. But you know, it's it's uh, obviously you know, and he you know he seemed to be quite proud of the film too, and I, I hope so because it's, and and you know I think he's you know it was a. It was a good experience, but uh, it's, it sounds like it was there could have been some brutal moments in shooting because it was there was some very complicated setups in there, especially that whole takes tank sequence at the end and yeah. that that whole third act is huge, yeah. huge, huge, huge choreographed stuff of stuff and scope that I think we kind of got introduced to that big stuff in like Saving Private Ryan, you know, that storming the beach and that kind of chaos. Um, but this was just done in a wholly different way. Well, yeah, as you're saying, he takes this stuff and carries it forward. Mm-hmm. He's he's pushing the tech further, but he's also making sure that it's rooted in an emotional story. I mean, that's yeah. the the I I I really liked Itumama Tambien. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, but I didn't take anything away from you know, like the talk of it being this this new Mexican cinema starting. It's like, well, it, this is fine, but it's, there's other stuff that's good too. Yeah, and then I saw the Harry Potter movie he made, mm-hmm. uh, and holy shit right like he yeah, took it's them one of the it is the best one yeah, yeah. I mean, he puts them great. in street clothes and it changes everything absolutely just they start acting like kids you relate to them normally and then you realize just how big the acting canvas is mm-hmm. um, there's a scene I'm pr- yeah no it is it's the third one there is a scene with 
Gary Oldman, Timothy Spall, and who's the third actor? They're all Mike Lee veterans. Yeah. And you're just... Um, oh, David Thewlis. David Thewlis. And they're all in it. And you just realize, oh, this is intentional. Like, the, the framing of this is designed to keep the kids out and just focus on the adults and make you think about what you're seeing and the fact that they're all actually acting instead of parading around in, in funny suits. Like, the mm-hmm. first two movies are, if you filmed the book, this is what you would get if you held up the, pra- the page. Of well, it's also it. kind of magical escapism, right? Yeah. I mean, and if you think if you're 11 years old going into that film and that's sort of the age of the kids, you're like... It kind of feels like that. It's like it's like wow, this is fantastical and fantasy and fun. And then what he brought was this element of a little bit of reality yeah. into there and grounding, which is also kind of age appropriate for the kids too, right? Yeah. It's like but that's got to handle on things. Things are getting serious, right? That's why they black. get him to do it to right? usher it forward yeah. again, right? Because you're going from weightlessness and pageantry to consequence and scary, yeah. like scary personal consequence. Mm-hmm. But what you get from that is from the director of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which makes me think that Universal, when they got this movie, they just, yeah, I, I think you're right. They just made the choice after choice that just put it in a corner and, and kept it. It should have been a summer release. It should have been a fall release. But I also think it's a tough film to get audiences excited about. Mm. Uh, a, a little like uh, Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. You know, there where... It's. I think it's a fantastic movie. I thought, you know, visually it was stunning. Like the design, like oh, there's so many. It, that's the best I've seen Harrison Ford in a long time. Yeah. Well, he's engaged. Right? Yeah, he's super engaged. And but the takeaway from the story is like the polar opposite of what you get out of a Marvel movie. Yeah. Of you know you're special and unique and you're you know you're a, a, a brilliant unique snowflake in the world. It's like well no nobody's special. And if when that's the takeaway. Is that no? Nobody's special. It's like it's kind of hard for our audiences to come away from. They go, yeah, nobody's special. Woo! Yeah. Can't wait to see. You should see this about not being special. It's like who's gonna, you know? But at the same time, is it's a mature adult story with this incredible backdrop, beautifully done. Uh, and I, I think now. If this was a story that people were adapting, we'd see it on on HBO. It would be a TV series. I was going to say, yeah, it's a, it has that Handmaid's Tale feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Handmaid's Tale, I think the adaptation reaches back to Children of Men very deliberately. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I mean, there is a chosen one in the film, but it's mm-hmm. not the hero. Yeah. And who it is isn't introduced for the first 45 minutes, I guess. And she doesn't show up until the second act, really. Yeah, they, they, yeah, the the wheels are in motion, but we don't know why. There's this girl you got to get to the seaside. Yeah, go and, talk to your was it your cousin? Yeah, and that's and that and that's the other thing I love about the film is that as in most mm-hmm. film noir, your perspective, our hero, is the guide to the world, not mm-hmm. necessarily the guide to the story. So yeah. the processes that he has to go through are the way we learn about what's going on. Mm-hmm. There's no exposition that he already knows which I think is great no one ever repeats something to him that he would already know it's all about us observing and seeing how you know mm-hmm. oh uh, Danny Houston's character has Guernica hanging in the wall on the mm-hmm. wall because he can because he's yeah. that powerful yeah and that's unsaid like he raided the Tate there it is and it's and it's and it's brilliant there's a line that that uh, that Clive Owen's character has in this like you know how do you do this in a hundred years there won't be a single Poor bastard to look at this art. It's he's collecting the art, uh, arc of the arts, right. right? Collecting these pieces of art from around the world. He's got the statue of David in his freaking living room, and you know, in a hundred years, nobody's going to care or nobody's going to be here to see nobody's it. And, he's like, left, yeah. and he goes, "Well, I just don't think about it." As he pops a pill to numb himself, as you know, and like it's just like you think about, it, like, well, yeah, everything's fine as long as you don't think about it, as long as you don't care. You can just everybody can just keep skating along and not ask these questions. Yeah, and yeah. I keep thinking that his character is the villain in a series of other movies that we have. No, seen, totally. Right, like a heist film where yeah. they're going to get the art, and mm-hmm. whatever coup happened to keep him in power, mm-hmm. and he's incidental. He really doesn't factor into the larger story. It's not about that. But I mean, that's the thing that the film does is it paints this picture of this much larger world that really doesn't concern our character. Yeah. And then it, it's it's actually a very very small story uh, that is is set in this dark catastrophic world, 
and it's th- it's those layers that are are so enriching. Like even when they um, they they uh, leave Michael Caine's place, and they uh, they're meeting that character Sid, who's the border control agent, there, right. right? The Peter Mullen. The, rule. Yeah, yeah. Which my my Peter Mullen rule is that when Peter Mullen appears in a film, things are not getting better. No, no. <laughs> Every single time. But they that location is a school. Yeah. That's just disused. It's yeah. just there's no there's no reason for a school anymore. And there's this there's this great um, imagery that goes throughout the film about animals, and that the animals are there, and that that strangely that animals like Clive Owen's character, so it, it makes you like him a little bit more. Yeah. But there's animals all throughout the film uh, that all seem to be doing just fine, which is kind of great, yeah. except for all the, di- the all the all the cows that were burning in the fields. Um, all the other animals are like, we're good, <laughs> we're just sort of waiting for you to die off, and we'll take over again. Yeah. And uh, it's just us. It's this beautiful. It's a beautiful thing that they keep coming back to, um, you know, as a theme of these these animals just being attracted to climb. There's a kitten climbing his pants. He's petting a cat. The dogs like him. There's a deer in the school. There's chickens on the stairwell. There's all this. Yeah, nature's slowly reclaiming the Mm -hmm. earth. Anyway, they're not. They're not even waiting for us. Mm -hmm. And the and then there's that other aspect of it of him being sort of kin to animals that you, know, you think about St. Francis and you think about mm. religious overtones and that was the last time I saw it I started thinking well you could this could be this could take place in the ninth century this doesn't have to be modern it's, absolutely it's it's so weirdly timeless for all mm-hmm. the technology for all the futurism there really isn't anything he does that requires you know you can't call anybody there's a, there's like a heads up display that's the closest thing to being a, a part of the story being told yeah. Because in the driving sequence, they they need it for the beginning of the sequence, for us to understand what's happening. Yeah. But without that, I mean, just put people in chainmail, and it would be like totally. a, an Arthurian legend. Well, you know, maybe that, maybe that, uh, in, in just in the context of the film, I mean, I think, again, I think the film is brilliant in, in how it was executed, um, and the production design, and, and, and at all facets, like the creative minds that went into this, it's, it's, uh, it's an achievement of that. But, you know, maybe it would have been more palatable if you had set it in 2250 mm-hmm. and this was a space opera, you know, like where it's the same thing, but you're telling it in outer space for spaceships and all. It's the same story. And maybe maybe that's what the audiences would have glommed onto because it wouldn't have felt so close because mm-hmm. this is a really uncomfortable film. It, it, it makes you feel uncomfortable. It's not a passive film. You can't just sit there and sort of laugh along or or be amazed by visual effects. It's you're engaged it's emotionally difficult you're dealing with grief and death and hopelessness yeah. and it's not necessarily the things that people want to think about all the time right it's not it's not it's escapism but it's not it feels pretty real yeah well it's it's the disaster movie that you know deep impact and armageddon it's an extinction level event it's just happening mm-hmm. so slowly yeah. that yeah people do think about it's it like watching people watching people get crushed by a glacier yeah right it's just like that's awful and it's still awful yeah and it's oh god it's still happening it's like it's not over quickly it's no nobody's ripping a band-aid off here yeah. it's no it's, it's awful this is a disaster movie by way of cries and whispers where you're mm-hmm. trapped in the room with the person who's dying yeah. and it's everyone and yeah it's yeah i i guess it is a harder sell than i first thought but mm-hmm. it's still a masterpiece absolutely and the and the the uh the artistic imagery, the biblical imagery, the uh, just the layers that you don't see uh, necessarily. Well, I I certainly didn't on first viewing because I don't I, I don't know when a movie is good. I'm not thinking about those things, sure, and yeah. I I tr- I don't want to. You know, it's like I said, I don't want to know how those shots were done because to me it's magic and awesome and it really happened. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to know. <laughs> And uh, there's only a few. There's only a few uh, movies and and or sequences that are like that. I'm just, I don't want to know. Somebody can tell me later, or somebody if I ever do one of those sequences in a movie, I'll just you know plug my ears when I'm talking <laughs> about it. But it's the other side is that I do see behind the curtain all the time, and to be lost in a movie where I'm not thinking about the technical aspects, and it even happened to me today. I think I've seen this movie three or four times, and I still get lost in sequences where it's been two minutes three minutes I'm like holy crap this is still the same shot yeah. but I'm not thinking about it like oh this shot's still going this shot's still going it's it's only either once that next cut happens or right towards the end like holy crap 
because I'm so adrenalized, because I'm so immersed, then it's almost like my brain checks off for a second. Like, hey, we need to chill out for a second. Yeah. This oh. is just a movie. No, it's the best possible way to experience mm-hmm. something. I mean, that's when you're not suspending your disbelief. It's just put aside completely. It's not conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the scene I always come back to is the scene where we sort of haphazardly learn what happened in New York, the shot of the nuclear detonation. Mm-hmm. And it's not... It doesn't register because they're talking about were your parents there? Mm-hmm. And that's that's how you would talk about something like that. That's Absolutely. The like, there's a realism that runs through this science fiction movie that I've never really seen captured quite so well anywhere else. And it's the same realism... It's the same realism he brought to Gravity. It's the same realism that's in the Harry Potter movie. I mean, mm-hmm. he somehow has an ear for it. And just... Such honesty. Yeah. And, 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 and it's honesty from the camera as well. Yeah. You know, there is no milking of a moment with he he lets the story happen in front of the camera and and lets the camera reveal things but doesn't force it down your throat it, you feel much more like you're a witness to a conversation as opposed to the conversation being thrown at you right. and you know if there is a slow push in it's slow and you're you're wide right you're not in an uncomfortable close-up of somebody while they're having a really very real moment, you're, it's almost like you're far enough away where you kind of just want to be able to reach out and put out a hand and put it on the shoulder like it's going to be okay. But you're, it, it, it's, it feels authentic. Yeah. Well, it's, you mentioned Soderbergh's style being similar in the Nick. It's something that's absolutely true. And it also made me think of the Dardennes and the way they handle stuff in this, the, these you know, Belgian neorealist mm-hmm. films, this this wave that they started and that everyone has picked up. You know, Aronofsky uses it in The Wrestler and yep. uh, David Russell kind of borrowed it for The Fighter and there's just this sense of the follow-along. And, yeah, it's become, it's gone all the way back around again from naturalistic to ostentatious. Mm-hmm. Where now, if I see an indie film start that way, it's just like, well, I know what they saw. I know what their reference points are. Mm-hmm. But with Quran, with Soderbergh, like Soderbergh has always been this sort of He's been he's been dinged for it in the past, mm-hmm. being the cerebral observer. But I mm-hmm. love that about his work. Absolutely. And and Quran has the same thing, but he works in genre exclusively. Yeah. So, it's never, he never gets the credit for it. Yeah. For the same kind of thing, like just that the camera's not always obviously handheld. Sometimes it's on a gimbal, but it yeah. it moves with a with it breathes in a way yeah. that Soderbergh's life there. breathes. Yeah. You're just yeah. you're aware that there's stuff going on beyond the frame. And you're always kind of ready for a, a turn or a tilt. To direct your attention, mm-hmm. but but because something interesting is happening, not because something interesting is about to happen. Well, and I think what uh, as as clever as some of those sequences are, they're not. They're not. Um, it doesn't feel that they're done with uh, ego, if you that makes say, any sense. You were going to say showy, right? Like the yeah, show. there's not like look what I can do. Yeah. it's not masturbatory in any way. It's not like. Look at how cool my shot is. It's it's how does this serve the story? And it seems like that's the question asked first all the time. Mm-hmm. How does this serve the story? And when that happens, it's just again, it's just this incredible honesty is coming the other way. So it makes it difficult. Uh, it makes it difficult for an audience. But that's that's I think why I'm so engaged with this film. It's like it just it feels so honest. Performances are honest. You know, Clive has these incredible moments in the film again where you know his his wife he hasn't seen for 20 years um they're essentially burying her in the woods he steps away for a second the camera never cuts and he has a quiet moment huddled against a tree trying to process his grief and it's like nope time to go and it's like okay wipe my eyes and and suck it up and and moving on but it's just so honest Hmm. You know, it's and, it, it puts you like there's no big showy like or even it's ridiculously stoic where he's sitting there with the single tear watching. It's like it's it's no, it's like it's basically screw that. This is this is life. And it's it's uh, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, it's the, I mean, I keep coming back to saying this film so great, but it really is it's kind of the point. Though. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I'm really glad you chose it because it's it's a film that I have loved and fought for and watched die over and over and over mm-hmm. again when people are like oh it was kind of long i didn't start it it's not oh that long oh my god it's a 2 hour movie it's, it just it felt so weighty and i think maybe part of that was 
the almost unanimous critical acclaim that read as hostile to some people because, you know... Well, if you all think it's great. It's a big, serious yeah. movie, right? Well, yeah. it is, but it's also pure mm-hmm. cinema and the... You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's exhilarating. It, it is a wonderful film. It is a quietly hopeful movie that leaves you on a high, even though, you know, you've basically... The saddest mm-hmm. images have been rolling past you. But it's a film that recaptures... I mean, just as the restoration of hope to the world is the yeah. theme of the movie, it's it's just like this movie made me believe in filmmaking, in a way oh, that yeah. it hadn't in a while. I don't, and I, I, I don't mean this cynically at all, but I don't think this movie would get made today, uh, at all. Would, no matter who was at the helm, I, I don't know who would, and I think maybe that was even a bit of the issue when it came out. Like, it's a risky film. How do you make your money back? Um, you know, everybody's asking, can we do this in TV? Uh, you know, had this film come out in 2000 or 2001, it might have been a different story. Mm-hmm. You know, when films like Traffic and Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan, I think, was the biggest box office of that year. It was I like think, the, yeah. it was the biggest movie that year. So, and it was a summer release. That might and, have it was a big, you know, nasty, raw look at war. I mean, yeah, it had Tom Hanks in it, but like, it was, it's a brutal film. And, you know, maybe after. Uh, Maybe it was after the in the middle of the Bush years and and Cheney and stuff like that. People didn't want to be dealing with this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's certainly intent behind scenes of the military, while Homeland Security, yeah. like all that while, stuff. While England and the U.S. are in Iraq. Yeah. Because that was already happening. But that's even in one of the uh, that's even in one of the the set deck pieces, uh, in in I believe Michael Caine's. Uh, house. Oh, it's like newspaper clippings. Yeah, it's like you know he had like the the different you know press clippings and things like that, and it's like stop the war in Iraq, yeah, uh, you know stop bombing Iraq or something like that. Like it's it's right in there. Yeah, and it's a message that could work for 1991 or mm-hmm. from 2003, and it's equally valid. It's, yeah, yeah, it's it's the sameness of it all, right? Like the sense that this is the last conflict too that goes through what everybody's yeah. emotions, that everyone's exhausted and everyone's tired and, and they're tired of fighting but they're pushing on. It's, like, it's mm-hmm. what Owen is, you know. Again, it's the film noir thing. Like it's the shameless yeah. with one more case who just doesn't want to do it. Yeah, and well, and it's, that's the beauty of it, right? It's the, uh, uh, you know, the alcoholic hangdog guy down on his luck who's going to do one, you know, do this for the five grand or whatever and then, you know, turns out that he's emotionally invested in this after all and the money doesn't matter. It's like, it's so, it's cliche when you frame it like that. Sure. But the execution isn't. And it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of a brutal take on humanity. And I think maybe that's why I like it so much too. It doesn't, it doesn't sugarcoat what we do to each other or who we are or our, our, um, opinions and the lengths that we're willing to go to fight for a misguided cause because that's the other thing is like the rebellion that's going on in this where they're they're fighting against the government that's being awful to uh, immigrants mm-hmm. they're they're by all intents and purposes fighting the good fight except for the things that they're doing which are just as equally awful yeah right and, and so like there's there is no heroes in war there's just loss. And that's sort of what it it's it, it's showcasing. Like just like this is just all awful. Yeah. You know, yeah. and to sort of claim that I think when we when we put those those bright and shiny uh, uh, patriotic or uh, those sort of war hero uh, archetypes up, I mean, it's like it's a great way of deluding ourselves as to what it really is. Yeah. But it's just. You know, this film doesn't do that. <laughs> it yeah. does everything uh, uh, to the contrary of that. So again, for for a country that was still in, in, ingrained in uh, the war in Iraq, and uh, you know, soldiers are still dying. I, I don't. I can see how it wouldn't necessarily have been palatable to, you know, the flyover states and and people that aren't film lovers. Yeah. It's a tough sell. Yeah. I'm kind of disappointed that it hasn't been rediscovered, too. Like it's, right? It's floating around, and people know about it. And, and, you know, all my friends have seen it because yeah. I insisted they watch it. But, you know, Universal didn't treat it particularly well on home video. The uh, I have the... Uh, I have an HD DVD. HD yeah. DVD. Amazing. Back at the time, they released it on both formats, which was good. And it's signed by? I got Quran to sign it. I Amazing. never, I am not an autograph hound, but every now and then, like I've been in the, I've, I've had the opportunity to meet somebody whose work I don't just admire, but 
but you know truly love or change yeah. my perspective i got soderbergh to sign you know that kayana scotsy box because he mm-hmm. produced yeah uh, 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 but i also i was it was this big event when um when Reggio brought visitors here. Yeah, I so, was there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I did the press day the next day, and yeah. I, I got them all this, like, Philip Glass. How am I not going to do that? It was amazing. I tried not to geek out, because um, this was right before I started the Knicks, oh, so okay. I actually went. It was, like, it, it was like r- r- research. Oh, we were uh, of just like, cause I was live? Yeah, because I was about to, like, two weeks later, I was or a week and a half later, I was going to New York to start the Knicks. So Jesus. it was like, I sat in the audience and watched Soderbergh moderate this panel. Yeah, I was there. And then uh, sat, uh, I was at... A restaurant, and uh, Reggio was at this restaurant, and Philip Glass is sitting across from me. And Philip Glass is one of my favorite composers. And I'm like, I'm kind of freaking out again. Like, yeah. oh my god, it's right there. Trying not to geek out, but it's like, oh, if I had had a copy of the DVD, it would have definitely been asking him to sign it. I went all in. It is entirely possible in my memory that this was the same day. Oh my god! Uh, that I saw that I had seen Gravity and did the interviews because it might. Oh have yeah, it was. Been, right? I, I saw Gravity at the festival that year too. And it was, yeah. So, Amazing. yeah, the next day was the interview day. And yeah. so I did, I had the Soderbergh thing in the morning and it was him and Reggio and Glass was there and I'm going to forget his name, but the editor was also there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that afternoon I had uh, 20 Minutes with Coron. And That's just, a great day. Yeah, it is. That's you just know, a great day. I don't get to complain about anything. And That's um, an awesome day. He was so delighted that I had the HD DVD. He said, <laughs> oh, it's obsolete tech. It's perfect for the movie. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. But then he shamed me into buying the Blu-ray because the he prefers the transfer. There's mm. a, there was a new transfer done a couple years after that. And so he said that there's a double pack. And he winced when he told me. He's like, well, there's one with Repo Men. But it's not the it's not Repo Man. It's the Jude Law, crappy shot in Toronto movie that oh right 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 yeah, 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 yeah. But that's how people see Children of Men now. It's box is two posts. It's the sort of like sci-fi weird thing yeah. war thing, and Dystopia. it's so not that film. Yeah. But again, I mean, you know, here we are, sort of crapping on Universal of how they release it. But I'm like, I don't know how you do it. Like, what is this like? go and see this movie it's gonna make you feel really awful for a while and question a lot of things in your life and then but ultimately things will be okay (laughs) you have to to die but it'll be all yeah exactly how do you but it's just and then and then we should talk about the cinematography on it as well because there is there's some groundbreaking cinematography yeah. From, uh, from Chivo, uh, Emmanuel Lubetsky. Yep. I just double checked to make who's sure. He's one of the premier cinematographers out there. The Revenant, yeah. right? Gravity. The Gravity. Did he win three Oscars in a row? Isn't he the first one? Nominated for three in a row. I don't know. Did he win three in a row? I mean, he, he easily could. I mean, it's just. I think it was Gra- Yeah, I think it was Gravity, Birdman, and, and uh, The Revenant in that, in that order. Bang, oh, jeez. Yeah, and well deserved. I mean, again, technically forward thinking, pushing the pushing cinema forward which is it's the academy of arts and sciences people forget about the sciences part but it it really is like pushing technology forward pushing how we tell stories it's like coming up with new a whole new style of paintbrush yeah and you're and you're a bunch of painters you're like hey have you ever tried one of these and it's like wow i never thought i could do that with a camera yeah and it's it's just brilliant it's brilliant and, and and there's this there's this Twitter account that I follow. It's called One Perfect Shot. Oh yeah. And the amount of times I see his work and work from this movie, I'm like, retweet, like, retweet, like, <laughs> retweet. Everybody, you just go see this movie if you like this shot because it's freaking genius. Yeah. And it's it's funny you mentioned um, the seamlessness of the work in Children of Men. Mm-hmm. I find the work he does for Inaritu much showier because that's the kind of filmmaker Inaritu is. Absolutely. He just wants to let you know how much work he's putting into it. Mm-hmm. And I'll always, I'm, you know, I'm always going to be on Quran's side because show me, you know, show me what you think is important, not your own sweat and tears. I mm-hmm. know you killed yourself making this movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, The Revenant is, is a spectacle and for so many reasons. Uh, but again, that's sort of the difference of the two filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, each, again, have their 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 uh merits yeah absolutely and charm says i mean like it's like you you like the way fincher treats a camera is so very different you know with that sort of like cool character matching camera movement which is so precise and so specific i mean that's an achievement in its own right uh like the choreography that goes into that and making executing that and the perfection uh like that's it's stunning. Yeah. When you when you start breaking down little movements and shots that, that just it's it's mastery in terms of and that's got to be 
painstaking <laughs> to get. Yeah, I mean, dozens of takes, apparently, yeah. and some of her acting, some of her, her camera choreography. To make it all work. Yeah, but as a result, his movies have that sort of chill feeling where everything is very tense all the time, but very mm-hmm. placid at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's a great vibe, but totally. again, you know what you're getting when, when you go to mm-hmm. a Fincher film. When you go to an Inaritu film, you know you're going to mm-hmm. watch an endurance test of some sort. Yeah. The thing about Children of Men is that it is, in so many ways, it's classical, it's formal... It's all, you know, like it's object-based cinematography. I don't know how else to describe yeah. it. You're watching the thing that is most important, even if you're coming at it from a different angle. But it's never insisting that you watch it. It's just there. Yeah. It's, you're just left there to... to and and the, there's this... Uh, there's, there's great moments where, you know, all the dialogue is happening in the background and you're just sort of seeing how Clive Owen's character deals with it. Mm-hmm. And just sitting there. And you're, you're watching... You're watching people in an environment... As opposed to uh, dictating the environment, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Even though it's so it's so designed and set up, but to, to make it look like it's not, you know, that to make it look like it. Oh, we just happen to be here. Yeah, exactly. Right. All these futuristic locations or, mm-hmm. or near future locations, the things that in the things that are in them did not exist before we built this set. Yeah. And it just it still feels lived mm-hmm. in and happened upon. This is the thing I was talking about with Alex Hooper in her episode about Brazil. Is that 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 was the first time she understood that the ducks were there on purpose that mm-hmm. everything in the film was was mm-hmm. bespoke yeah and it's something that i really try to appreciate in sci-fi and and speculative stuff because yeah you have to think about everything, everything. um just as you know george miller on fury road insisted that every object have two purposes because it was the thing it was and then the thing that it, it is, is now yeah. uh there's like hedge clippers on his mask and stuff mm-hmm. like that and it's all fascinating exhausting they had to design a quietus kit you know, like what would it look like what and, would and commercial product? yeah there was a full commercial for how that do you sell that you know how do you people? sell the product of uh, you know the at-home suicide kit and but it was genius mm-hmm. and uh you know you could sell that thing today and people would buy it yeah. you know what i mean and it's but it was the design of that was beautiful like the, like the production design of this film there is not a th- object out of place there you know from the graffiti to uh you know the art in the background um and the choices of that art mm -hmm. the stuff that exists in the new stuff yeah it's just and then you know uh it it just it just never it it, i wasn't prepared to i I was worried actually going back into watching it this morning i was worried because you never know like you 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 love a film, you leave it for a while, and you come back, and you're, there's always that little bit of worry for me in rewatching something that I that I love that I'm going to find the flaws and I'm going to be kind of bummed out sure. and like ah, it's not as good as I remember. And and part of that's contextually too, because you, you know the language of cinema can change over time, uh, audience expectation changes over time, my own life experience changes over time. But Absolutely. this one just just it just it held up. I should say, too, what was crazy about watching this the first time in the theaters is I was sitting next to my wife, who was pregnant, and my friend's wife, who was also pregnant. Oh, my God. It was awesome. <laughs> like, there was, like, babies alive and kicking in their tummy while we watched this, and they were getting rumbled. Or was my wife? My wife wasn't pregnant. Our friend was. Uh, or maybe Adria didn't know she was pregnant yet. It was just like nuts and so like at one point her baby is like full on you know right. during these big loud sequences yeah, like full on kicking back <laughs> and you're like holy crap like we all kind of walked out of it shell shocked because we were, we were both yeah we were, we were both expecting a child that year and it was just like whoa this is heavy this is heavy stuff this is all very real God. it was an awesome way to see it's it the best certainly made it very grounded yeah and uh yeah, it was, you know, you're looking at your own wife of, like, this vision of Madonna at this time, too, and, like, the imagery that comes into that, and just, like, it's just so much empathy and fear that, that played into that, and, you know, I, I, I have a, a preteen now, and, it, and, 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 it, and it held up, God and it didn't need, I didn't need that extra, uh, uh, the real-life circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, that's, yeah. that's probably the best way to see that movie. Yeah. Just to know it's not real. Just yeah. to, to be able to reach over. Yeah, and, just yeah. reach over and touch the belly and make sure like, we're still good. We're still good. <laughs> this is a really scary proposition I'm looking at right now. 
Yeah, I totally forgot about that until this morning rewatching. I'm like, oh yeah, everybody was all preggers when we were watching this. God. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you've already sort of discussed it with the with the the stalking Clive Owen for for background stories. Mm. But is there anything about Children of Men now that has that you've stolen or lifted or borrowed? Is there something in your creative DNA that's in there? I think I think one of the things, and I, and I, again, I talked uh, sort of alluded to it with. Uh, you know Soderbergh as well is putting the camera where the story is, and that that's not necessarily what it looks like in the script of of that efficiency of breaking down what is this really about, mm-hmm. and getting you know Children of Men is is a great example of that, and watching getting to watch Soderbergh do it uh, for two two seasons of The Nick where just breaking down a scene and where he would find the story of the scene, which necessarily wouldn't be what you'd think it was if you were just reading the script, but then sitting back and looking at it and going, that's where the story is. This is about how this person feels about this, not about what this person is saying. And then having the the gravitas to just let the camera live there and not shoot the other coverage, right? Yeah. I think, you know, there's the... The sort of Michael Bay, Marvel, you know, lots of cutting, lots of spectacle. We go, well, let's just cover it from all angles and then see what we get later, right? Yeah. It's like, put all the shots in there and then we'll see what we got later. And and not to say that there's not a lot of forethought that goes into, you know, I don't know how someone to make a Transformers movie. Like, I wouldn't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. And those things are so big and expensive that you want insurance, right? Yeah. You need to know that you have the shot. Yeah. And if it didn't work, you need a backup. Right. Whereas, you know, the the boldness of what Children of Men is and how it sort of approached Nick and gravity, where you're like, we're just going to let this shot live. And obviously the, 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 the technical component of what into gravity was, was uh, insane in yeah. terms of the, how they had to actually shoot that. Again, pushing cinema forward. But the, how this felt so real... And um, that that to me is 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 the the big takeaway for me. It's just how honest it was, how the camera was honest, how it felt like there was no ego behind the lens, where it wasn't about what the director wanted to show you. It was like this is what the story demands you see, and to have that perspective uh, as a filmmaker, it, that that's got to take a lot of restraint in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It's because, yeah, everybody wants to shoot cool shit. Everybody wants to do something really cool. Yeah. Um, but to, to take the ego out of it and just allow it to be what it needed to be um, and not, you know, get nine angles on this super cool explosion you just did or or whatever it is. Um, and not to say that there's not uh, that long shots or what that means. I mean, there's incredibly effective cuts in this film yeah um and quicker sequences but i just that 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 attention to let the story be the story and not get in its way that 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 to me is what it is i mean it sounds crazy that these these amazing constructed shots where you have to be you have to be full of gravitas to even go after that like we're gonna do this you have to have a very healthy ego but then to not impart that ego onto the lens that's that takes uh, some definite maturity and and restraint i would think i don't know if i would ever get there (laughs) that's that's a that's a challenge and it's it's just not playing safe but being being bold and daring and egoless at the same time yeah to you know for lack of a better term that's where art comes from and, and it's not created to reflect its glory it's just like i think he just wants to tell the story and get out of its way which is just incredible which is admirable right there's so many people looking to impart things on a story or um push a narrative or push their pov and i mean while you you can do that there's subtle ways and and uh i i find that to be the most uh, mind-blowing thing about this film is that it is it's a whole incredible world that they constructed and it, but it just feels very honest and the choreography feels very grounded and the tension that they create is feels very real and it, it's 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 not it doesn't feel like there's any lies yeah in this film you know because like there's a to me um somebody i I, I'm, I don't remember who said this to me it's probably i don't know who it was but it, you might know this quote but every time you cut 
you're telling a lie, right? Every time you make an edit, you're telling a lie. Okay. So sounds, make yeah. it a good lie. Make it an honest lie. Make it something that, make that lie one that pushes it forward. Because it's not real. It's right. It's not authentic. It's you're 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 cutting to a whole new place or a different POV, and and so if you're lying, m- make sure you know why you're lying. <laughs> don't just yeah, don't just throw a bunch of lies in there and hope that one of them catches and people will be discombobulated and it's good enough. It's make it worthwhile. Hmm. Sounds like Billy Wilder. No, maybe somebody with that kind of command of mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah, I can believe it. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds like an oversimplification of, a, of an incredibly challenging job, but it, it's to be able to look at it like that and go, okay, uh, the, the, the Russian filmmaker, what's his name, Tarkovsky, you see some of the, the, the longer shots that he would do and allowing a shot to evolve. And um, uh, that, that, that kind of attention is, is like, you definitely see that in, in these works. Yeah, you know, you see that evolution of of things like he was doing in Stalker, where there's these long, incredibly shot post apocalyptic yeah, of, of the wasteland, which yeah. is more or less. I mean, that's the closest analog I can think to what Quaron is doing here. Mm-hmm. It's showing us the wasteland as it's being created. Yeah, like the world is ending. Yeah, and whatever comes next is going to be the stuff of Tarkovsky films if we don't turn it around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a prequel. Yeah, I guess so. Jesus eh? Christ, <laughs> that got heavy. <laughs> <laughs> What's your biggest takeaway from this film? I think the thing that shocks me is how modern it still feels. Mm. Like it doesn't, it hasn't dated. That's the beauty of, you know, a futuristic story or or a really good period piece is that they'll tell you about the period they were made, but they'll still play. Yeah. Because they're, you know, with the exception of something like Star Wars, where the hairstyles tell you, mm. you know, that's a, a bit of a giveaway. There's really nothing about this movie that dates it. Uh, and the pessimism is certainly more relevant, mm-hmm. but it's not a pessimistic movie. The characters are pessimistic, but the film is optimistic, which is the thing I love about it, is that you get that balance. Mm-hmm. It's constantly showing you what is worth fighting for by making them discover it. Yeah. And so we get to be maybe not a step ahead exactly, but you, you're right next to them on this ride, and it's less important because these movies... The, yeah, the possibility of an unhappy ending is there. Mm-hmm. But the more time you spend in the world, the more you really want to believe that it's going to have a happy ending, which is the rediscovery of hope that the movie is putting the characters through. Yeah. I think it just, it played me like a violin by making me accompany them, literally. I mean, we're riding along. That's what this mm-hmm. movie is. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until the second and third viewing that I saw what I was riding through. It was mm-hmm. really more about the trip. And yeah. And that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. It put me out of my critical head and made me, like it was a hard review to write. It was an easy review to write because I was enthusiastic, but it was hard to piece it together in a way that was coherent because I just you know I wanted to say this is really something and you should go. It's a feeling, yeah, right, as opposed to an event. Yeah. So and maybe that's the challenge of why people didn't get to see it because it's yeah. hard to uh, you know I don't know how long we've been talking now, but it's hard <laughs> to sort of contextualize how you feel about a film when there's a lot of layers to it and you're really talking about feelings that come up mm-hmm. of while watching it and very personal feelings yeah again uh, cynicism and hope and uh, what does that mean to us and what is that what would that look like oh god like it's just it, go, it goes on it's a deep it's a deep cut, this film. Yeah. And yeah. people talk about, you know, Blade Runner and, and Blade Runner 2049 as existential science fiction, which they absolutely are. Mm-hmm. This is too, but because it looks modern and, and more or less present day, mm-hmm. it was harder to explain to people that it is sci-fi uh, yeah. or that it is anything. I mean, just like... But I also know some people like, oh, it's sci-fi. I don't want to watch it because they don't like that genre, whatever the heck that means. Right. Um, they usually think there's going to be either lightsabers or flying cars. Yeah. And okay, yes, Blade Runner has flying cars and they're pretty cool, but that's not what it's about. But it's like it's like a rival sci-fi, but it's not sci-fi. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's a it's a human story, but just transplanted into a, you know again like fifteen minutes in the future. Yeah. Well, Villeneuve said um, the way he he saw Arrival was that it was basically it's 
people facing a challenge they didn't expect to face. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely mm-hmm. anything. Like that can be That's absolutely it's yeah, so universal. The kid with a the kid with a disease, I mean it's all in there, but yeah. you know, it, it can be whatever specific challenge in that film that you want mm-hmm. it to be. And then you don't even have to have aliens and you don't have to have a broken chronology. It can simply be about that. It's about worrying about what to do next. Mm-hmm. And this movie is absolutely that. There's choice after choice after choice. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how completely relatable it is for a situation that neither of us should ever be able to expect to face yeah it's just it's just drama it's just there absolutely but it just it just feels so tangible it feels like this is this could be us yeah and 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 i think you know to a certain part of the population how offensive this would feel how how uh, like this this film would be capable of really pissing a bunch of people off Mm -hmm. because you know, they, they, however, their ideology might not fall in line with this. Yeah. And that would be pretty challenging. It's, it's not necessarily safe subject matter all the time. It's not necessarily kind of stuff you'd even want to talk about at Thanksgiving dinner. Cause it's certainly gonna, it certainly could polarize the room. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, talking about things like immigration and, and childbirth and, and like people have pretty strong emotions on these things and depending on how you're raised and, and also, you know, the film, how it depicts, uh, you know, the religious sect in terms of like, Oh yeah, you know, what is this? Are these the groups that just kneel down and try and repent? No, no, this is the other group that just uh, flagellate themselves uh, uh, in order to to have it's like it's yeah. doesn't it's not painting them in, uh, religions in a very good light. No, it's it's um, it's great how nimble it is too about whether this is potentially supernatural or, or theological. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the character's name is Theo. It's so good. Yeah. it's there yeah. for you if you want to think about it, but it's not really. Yeah. And um, the idea that on some level we deserve it, which mm-hmm. we talked about at the beginning, just floats around there all the time. Yeah. And we did it, this to ourselves. Yeah. If it did happen, why did it happen? Mm-hmm. And that. By setting it in a place where we're past worrying about that, it just makes it linger in the memory so much more. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it's just you know, god damn it, it's a perfect movie. It really is. I'm so glad. It, like that's the thing. It's like that was gonna be my statement. And I'm like, it's perfect movie. <laughs> Come at me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is so much easier when we agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what Twitter's for, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Every, yeah. Just you. Know, everybody read this, and then you know. You got a hot take. Come at me. Come at us both. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Because it's awesome and you should see it. Better yet, go buy it and watch it again and again. Because it's great. I just keep thinking there's a Criterion edition that should be made. If we can make that happen. You know Soderbergh. Get him on this. (sighs) Yeah. Make it. Do it. They're tight. Do it. Make this... Make it. We need the criterion on this. There's a special feature. I, but again, I don't want to watch the special features. I don't want to know. I, 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 like, I desperately want to know. Like, I desperately, <laughs> desperately want to know, but I kind of don't. It's just like, you know, Hogwarts is real. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to know how you did it. Let's just. Let's just. Let's just let it be. My thanks to Eric Johnson who you can see returning as Jack Hyde in Fifty Shades Freed in theaters literally everywhere this Friday from Universal Studios. Eric also co-stars with Alan Hawko, Paul Gross, and Tori Anderson in Caught, a new CBC miniseries premiering Monday, February 26th. He's also just joined the cast of Vikings, which is why you might have seen him around with a really big beard lately. You can find Eric on Twitter at EricJJohnson79, all one word, and you can find Children of Men on Blu-ray and DVD from Universal Studios Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.